Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Do you know if the drugs you are prescribed and are taking are actually delivering value? Who has your best interests front and center and you trust to make a determination and guide your clinical decision-making process on what therapy is indicated for the disease in you? If you were leaning on the Food and Drug Administration or FDA, which is the main regulatory body that adjudicates drugs and is responsible for protecting the public health by assuring safety, efficacy, and security of drugs and biological products, recent news and events might give you pause. You may have heard about a new drug on the market targeted at treating Alzheimer's, made by Biogen, called Aduhelm. Of the two large studies of Aduhelm submitted to the FDA, One found that the drug was able to delay the loss of memory and thinking, while the other found no clear benefit. The advisory panel to the FDA recommended against allowing the drug, but the FDA rejected the advice and gave it conditional approval. The equivocal test result has confused patients and divided doctors and medical institutions that provide Alzheimer's care, but has not stopped groups from jumping in on both sides of the table those that want it to be made widely available, and those that think more data is needed. Maybe a one in two chance is worthwhile until you consider the drug comes with some significant life-impacting side effects, such as cerebral hemorrhage and swelling. And that's before you consider the eye-watering cost of this therapy that comes in at over $50,000 per year. Despite the uncertainty and confusion, the rate for Medicare premiums has just been raised by the largest amount in history, in part because of the impact this drug will have for treating patients covered by Medicare. All this is happening with the backdrop of information and data that is available but not being used or applied to the decisions made about our healthcare. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down podcast as I talk with Promode John. He is the CEO of Vivio Health, a serial entrepreneur who wanted to focus his energy on the hard problems to solve, many of which are in healthcare, and asking the right questions about our healthcare system along the way, countering many of the assumptions we all have about healthcare and the incentives at work. Hi, Pramod. Welcome to the show. Uh, Very nice chatting again, Nick. How are you? I'm well. So we're focusing on pharmacy uh, drugs, drug benefits, the system just is not working. What's wrong with it? What's going on? Well, I mean, Nick, I think it's a question of what do you mean by not working? For whom? If you mean, is it not working for the patient? That's probably a fair comment. But it's working for everybody else. 
And if you're asking the question of, is it not working for the people who pay for this stuff? You're probably right there too. But if you're asking, hey, but why is healthcare in general, you know, in the US, the largest single industry by far, it blows away government, education, everything else. And it, you know, today, if you aggregately is, is bigger than the GDP of France, which is number five. If you're asking the question of, isn't that a success story? I'd, I'd ask the question in reverse. Why do you think that's a failure? Isn't that a success story? We're pouring $4 trillion into healthcare. It's the biggest industry in the world. But are we getting the results from the drugs? And if we're not getting the results, how do we get the results? And how do we find the ones that are actually delivering the value? Are we even asking the question of whether we care about the results? And so, I mean, you're presupposing that we actually care about the answer to your question. But why do you think we do? Just a few, uh, about a couple months ago, if you remember, there was a well-known drug, which was now become the poster child of our broken drug approval and drug prescribing and drug payment, if you will. If you want to think about the poster child of what you're asking today, it's the drug called Agile which was approved by the FDA a few months ago for Alzheimer's. It's made a lot of press. Everybody's talking about it. Congressional, you know, on, on the House and the, everybody's talking about it. The politicians, policymakers, how could this happen? New F, I mean, it just goes on and on. But if you were to go back and ask with, what's the, what's the story here? The story here is that everybody in this case, including the committee that is the scientific community, committee at the FDA agreed this drug, there's no evidence the drug did anything. And we approved it anyway. And so everyone's asking the question of how could that happen? But that's not what's interesting. What's interesting about that is that two weeks ago, if you saw, Medicare announced the largest single increase in premiums in Medicare's history. That's a big deal. And not only that, it's that the part we aren't paying attention to is remember, that's just the premium side of the cost. If a participant is paying 10 to you know, 20% of the cost, that means 80% is still being paid by taxes on the cost of these services. And that means that that's not even the actual cost to Medicare that's going on, that's just premiums. And if you go back and look at why they predicted that, they predicted that increase because of the fact that they had factored in that a large amount of Adjuhelm, this drug that doesn't work, was going to be prescribed. That's crazy and mind boggling when you think about it. But what really struggle with in this particular domain is what that implies is that that drug is going to be prescribed in large quantities based on data that you say doesn't exist, doesn't show benefits, yet we know that physicians, when they think about health for themselves, will not take on these uh, non-contributory treatments. They tend to die differently because they accept the failures of some of these systems. They look at this with more discerning eyes, yet you're telling me that that prescribing practice is changing. So if that's the case, who should be controlling and managing that if we're not getting the right therapies as a result of the trust we place in the individuals? So I think that you know the, the first part of the problem is that we should start by analyzing, well, are the assumptions that we make factual. We live in a world where we live in a world of assumption. We live in a world of assumption that says, well, if the FDA approves a drug, of course it must work. Why else would the FDA approve a drug? If the FDA approves a drug, you know, then that must mean that there's a benefit to somebody. We make assumptions there. We make assumptions around the fact that, well, physicians apparently must understand all the data behind this. 
I mean, we don't need a further example than this one case to go back and ask the question, do we have a fundamental problem? And remember, this isn't about some oncology. I mean, we could talk until we're blue in the face about oncology therapies that don't work. You know, going back to your comment about physicians who would never, never take these drugs themselves, even though they will prescribe it for their, you know, people uh, that are their patients. Have you also noticed that call up your physician friends and ask them about their, their gas purchasing, if you will, habits? Every physician that I know will drive a couple extra miles to save a few pennies on gas. Imagine that they'll do that in their own lives, but they'll never do that about the drugs they prescribe. They don't even care what the cost of these drugs are, whether they do anything or not. But so if you go back and ask, take a physician, your average physician, everything about their own personal life is different from how they practice medicine. They care about cost benefit. They care about, you know, the question of benefit, like you just brought up, they would never prescribe them for themselves, but yeah, they prescribe them because somebody wants it or they saw it on TV or the drug rep, you know, pharma has regularly been pouring just under $10 billion a year on direct payments in some way, shape or form or indirect research and other things to physicians on average about every year. So as I think about this, I, I, I inherently, I know that the vast majority of those physicians are not prescribing that on the basis of wanting to do harm or mischief or any of those reasons. This is not a, um, a, a process that they go through to, well, I, it, it's no good for me, but I might as well prescribe it. So there's other pressures that are taking place. Is that linked to the direct to consumer marketplace that is essentially advertising and they're being forced into this? Or are there other drivers that are essentially pushing patients to say, I must have this? So, I mean, I know that all of, I mean, we're one of the two countries in the world that allows direct to consumer advertising. Most everyone else has said, look, if, you're, if a consumer can't buy it, it's not a consumer problem, right? If I don't pay for the drug, well, it's not a consumer problem anymore. Somebody else is the prescriber. Somebody else is the payer. I happen to be the consumer. Unless it's a $2 drug, most likely I'm not paying for it. So it's not a consumer market. So everyone else has realized the real reason why they don't do DTC, you know, direct-to-consumer marketing is because it's not a consumer problem. That's why, fundamentally, right? If you were to step back and just analyze the domain of the problem itself. And so then if you were to step back and ask, well, sure, there are definitely there's that marketing towards, you know, if you will, people, they go and ask for the purple pill or the blue pill or whatever, right? You know, the, the, the drug of the day is. But if you were to step back and ask, most of these drugs, if you were to look at the advertisements on television today, have switched to specialty drugs. We're not seeing advertisements for $2 drugs anymore. Almost every drug on there is a $50,000 plus $50,000, $200,000 a year therapy that's being advertised on television. All of pharma's pipeline, if you were to look at their R&D, is specialty. Aduhel at $56,000 a year is a specialty medication. It's not a blood pressure medication. And so when you start looking at these things, you realize, wow, pharma's advertising these a very expensive, very low frequency in the population drugs. Okay, when you look across the population of the, you know, going back to population level health and what the responsibility of government is, the responsibility of government is to take care of the most people that it can, right? And increase whatever the health scores or whatever, not for, you know, a very small number of people in the population. That's an individual's responsibility to care about their own health. The government's responsibility is to care about everybody's health, not just one person's. 
right? That's the difference between you and me as an individual. And we run three miles a day because we care about our health. But the government's not going to put any standards that say, you need to run. Everyone in America needs to run three miles a day. Not the responsibility of government to do that. And so part of this is really a question of, you've got advertisements to consumers. But remember, you've also, if you were to go back and ask, but that's not the insidious problem that we face. It's not the, as much as we complain, I think that's a red herring. And why, why I think it's a red herring is that how do doctors prescribe? Doctors prescribe because they heard about the drug from the drug company that's advertising to them. And it turns out that doctors make decisions direct to doctor advertising, just in the way that direct to consumer advertising works, if you will. And as a result, doctors, you know, try this out, Nick, call up a few of your doctor friends and ask them, hey, what are the top three drugs you prescribe? So give them a softball and then ask them, when was the last time you read the clinical trial data yourself on any of them? And if you get ever, let me know. So you, you make some great points. The challenge of actually discerning out uh, the appropriate medication based on this overwhelming amount of data. We know historically that the time from research to the point of application can be 15 to 20 years, sometimes even longer, where we know something works and it fails. It, it takes that long. So we're essentially, we, we reached a crossover point for physicians in terms of information overload. So they clearly need supporting activities. But then the question arises, who or where should that information be coming from to essentially help guide that? And do we take that decision-making process out of that domain into a more uh, rigorous, scientifically founded system? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. And so if you were to step back and ask, traditionally in this country, who has taken that position? Payers have. Medicare is the single largest payer in the, in the world, right? When you think about them as a payer. When you step back, it's like, well, who are the other payers who've done that? Well, that's what health plans do, pharmacy benefit managers are supposed to. But the problem is that if you go back and ask, and you brought up a really interesting point, which is the basis of what we do should be science, right? And we started with science. But the problem today isn't the thesis that, hey, someone should be responsible. It's, you know, you raise a question of who. Generally speaking, it's the people who pay for things who generally take responsibility for the things that they pay for. As a consumer, you and I take responsibility to pay for the things that we buy. As a result, we care whether that car runs or not, right? We don't care whether our neighbor's car doesn't run or not. We care about whether our car runs or not. And if you took your neighbor and said, there's a 50-50 probability that a car runs, at that point, that means that one of the two of you's car is not going to run. We would never put up with that in our lives. We would never pay $35,000, the average cost of a car for a car that didn't run. But every day we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for drugs that don't work and have no data that they will. You brought up an interesting question about longevity. You're right. Sometimes it takes 20 years. And then what we find is something, the opposite of what you're saying. We really thought something was going to work and then it doesn't. I'll give you an example, aspirin for, to prevent cardiac events. But if you were to go back and ask why, when we started out framing him and all those studies that actually resulted in aspirin being useful, the data that we had, the short-term data indicated benefit. We've never had a drug in which we indicated no benefit 
And then suddenly it indicated benefit in the long run. We've had many drugs that we thought had great benefit, but then over time we realized there are side effects and other things that were unknown that are long-term that took away from the benefit. But we always started with benefit, never that there was no benefit. Now we have drugs that we're coming to market, like the Agilhelm example, for which we find no benefit. And we have never seen in history where we had a drug that had no benefit. And then suddenly we found, you know, 20 years later, wow, that really helped so many people. Uh, we just weren't able to figure out that it helped anyone. So what you're, you're tilting towards is what I think most people would refer to as the formulary. So let's narrow the choice. Let's set up a, a set of uh, parameters that define value, contribution, even some qualities, um, you know, a, a value proposition to place on individual therapies and determine that. But a formulary seems to be a dirty word at this point because it's not providing that value. What, what are they doing? Well, I mean, but you brought up a really good question, which is like the, like the comment, like the idea of a formulary, right? Let's put that aside and say, hey, do we all believe that we should be able to find things that work and find things that don't work? That's what consumer reports and everything does. In the rest of our lives, we're always looking for information about, well, does it do what it says it's going to do or not? And we tend to find the stuff that it does and, the, and we pan the stuff that it doesn't. So the market just works as is. Why do you think drugs should any be, be any different? I mean, like, why does anybody think drugs should be any different? Now, the criteria that we use may be slightly different, but it still has to come back. If you go back to, and you ask the question of quality, what's quality fundamentally based on? It's based on the assumptions that number one, it must, something that you take as a drug therapy or drug intervention, medical intervention, in this case, it's a drug, must either improve your quality of life or must improve your life expectancy. And the overall benefit minus the side effects and everything else should still improve life expectancy and quality of life. Otherwise, why would one take it? It would be the equivalent of saying, I bought the car that doesn't run. We would never buy that. Why would we buy that? And why is there such a question in our minds of, can we talk about qualities? It's almost like a bad word. Can we talk about life expectancy? Can we talk about things that work? And you're like, why? We wouldn't, we would do that for everything else in life. Why do we suddenly shy away other than people who have an economic interest in us paying for things that don't work? And you're like, who would have that? An economic interest in things that don't work. Let me give you a couple of examples. Pharma, as you can see, in this case, has an economic incentive. We don't have to we don't have to press that example very hard just based on everything we talked about today. But how about all the other parties involved? Every PBM and health plan in this country pretty much benefits when more healthcare and more expensive healthcare occurs, right? So now you have a problem. All the people who were supposed to sit in the middle to protect the people, right, if you will, as a payer now have economic incentives that they make more money every time someone gets more healthcare or the cost of healthcare goes up. So you've got a problem out of the gate that your economic incentives are misaligned. They're not aligned around answering the question of, is this therapy a great therapy? They're aligned around the question of, can we make more money? And as long as the system works that way, you get what we have, $4 trillion or 20% of our GDP being spent on healthcare. And it's a colossal waste we are not getting a return for those dollars that we're putting in. We have some of the, we have lower life expectancies, lower quality of life than countries that spend half as much as we do. So it, it's very clear we're not getting value for money. 
it's very clear that the system is working as designed, but it's not benefiting the individuals, ultimately the patients, let's call it, because even for the folks that work in this industry, at some point, they must come back to the reference point that I am a patient and I want this system to work for me. So you, you spent a long time essentially trying to bend that to a better solution. What is your uh, option or method that we can approach this so that this changes so that we start to get the value out of the system and specifically around pharma, because that seems to be the one that's consuming the most in the way of resources and sending things over the edge. Nick, I'd say one answer, invert the asymmetry of information. Today, the only parties who have information are the people who sell things. And we also have relegated all information about these things to come from the people who sell us things. We are, we're not skeptical anymore. We don't ask the questions ourselves, even things like physicians. We started off the conversation talking about how hundreds of thousands of physicians in America are gonna prescribe a drug that even the consumer know doesn't works, work. And you're like, how is that possible? It starts with the assumptions we make about what everyone else does. We make assumptions that health plans and other people stand to, you know, for our benefit. We make assumptions that politicians don't take money from pharma uh, in other places, and those things don't influence the way they create public policy. We make assumptions that the FDA is fundamentally to help the American people. And we make all of these assumptions. We make assumptions that physicians understand this data and they're experts in the data. And our argument is that, no, stop making assumptions and find the data for yourself because the data and the facts speak for themselves. So does that mean that the individual has to be invested in this in a way that allows them to make the decisions? Or is the some, I mean, how do we get to that? That asymmetry is essentially present. Do I have access? Can I make those decisions? You know, belie the fact that I'm a physician and should know better. So the answer to that is a lot of this data today is publicly available. What we're going to start with is making people accountable. And for example, why do doctors, American Medical Association, make the laws around what physicians can do in the practice of medicine? Why aren't there parties that are disinterested economically who can answer those questions? By the way, in drug trials, it's not physicians who are involved. There aren't any doctors involved in creating new drugs. But apparently doctors are the only ones who can prescribe the things that they weren't smart enough to create themselves. Think about how broken our system is today. Pramod, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me, Nick. It is clear we all need to check any assumptions we might have about healthcare, especially the business of healthcare at the door. We are told that you need to spend time and energy focusing on things that are important sufficient to be able to understand the underlying data and the economic drivers. This is true in healthcare as it is in buying a car, a household appliance, financial investing, and gasoline. Drug pricing is outstripping our ability to pay, and a large proportion of these escalating costs is linked to specialty drugs that can account for as much as 50% of the cost while only treating a small percentage of patients. We can no longer accept the value of a treatment based on it being prescribed and our assumption that all the processes in place make this choice the right choice for you, since the assumptions are not all aligned with yours and in fact may be counter.
Your better pill to swallow is challenging all the assumptions you have about the decisions and systems in healthcare and questioning the alignment. You need to invert the asymmetry of information, seeking out the answers to the question, is this the right answer, treatment or drug for me? Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, Keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag HC upside down. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.